Are you ready to go off script? Let's see how the Bible challenges the roles the world has written for us. This is part five in our series on responding to your questions and comments. In this Q&A episode, we address two commenters who responded to off script number 34, Killing the Unborn, a Christian View of Abortion. Dan Fitzsimmons responds to Candace, who inquired why Dan would vote against capital punishment, but not against abortion, even though he opposes it on moral grounds. Rose Ryder responds to John's lengthy comments in which he called into question the legitimacy of using the Bible to arrive at a position on abortion. This is a much longer episode than the other Q&A ones, but I felt like it was important to keep together both of these responses, Dan's response and Rose's response, because they really do balance each other out. Although we have some disagreement in this episode, I think it's really helpful to see the difference between how one works out his or her faith politically versus how one is able to arrive at a moral position on an issue. First of all, I want to thank Candace. She's clearly a uh, devoted off-script listener. Mm-hmm. She's mentioning something I said in two different episodes. So I really appreciate you listening and, and commenting in on, on this. So Candace wrote, I have enjoyed the series. Thank you for taking the time to get together to, and do this. On this point, however, I am confused as to one of your panelists' positions. In the lesson on capital punishment, there's a declaration that if policymaking allowed us as individuals to cast our votes in favor or against, the panelists would be against and vote accordingly. Yet in this discussion, the panel states that he would never intervene in public... So then she switches to abortion. In the abortion discussion, the panelist states that he would never intervene in a public policy sense to tell a woman what she can and cannot do with her body. If the act of what she does is murder, which we all acknowledge, then these policy positions seem conflicted. Why would this panelist intervene politically against capital punishment and not against killing and not killing of the unborn? You know, I think that's a valid comment. It's a great question. And I considered what, what Candace wrote. And what I've come to believe is that, first of all, I don't think God calls on us to change the world through political means. And I'm against capital punishment, you know, not mainly for religious reasons, but because we sometimes execute innocent people, as, as we said earlier in the podcast. And I'm also against it because it's not shown to be a deterrent against capital crimes. To the extent that my faith does come into play in this issue, I'm against it because assuming that that person didn't become saved after committing their crime, it prevents God from changing or working through that person. And all of these ideas, uh, it could be argued, also extend to the unborn. Uh, I recognize that. But where I come down on this is that voting in favor of a law that outlaws abortion is coercive and people do not respond well to coercion. And if abortion were outlawed and I had a hand in bringing that to pass, I don't think it's going to end abortion or stopping from having abortions. I think it's going to drive it underground. And there's a host of, of issues with that. And just to give a little, I looked up some stats, uh, according to the Centers for Disease Control, there are hundreds of thousands of abortions that are legally carried out in the U.S. every year. Uh, in 2014, last year, I could find stats for the abortion rate was just over 12 for every thousand babies born in the U.S. So that's a lot of innocent lives. Um, and it's a very common and, and culturally ingrained practice. It's, it's a right in this country to have an abortion under the cer- certain circumstances. And because abortion's so common, I don't believe that there's, I don't believe that the way to affect the prevalence of it is to pass a law banning it. I don't think that 
protesting Planned Parenthood or standing outside a clinic with a sign screaming at the women who go inside is an effective or Christian way to, to change people's hearts. Demonstrations like that damage people's view of Christians, and I don't think you would have seen Jesus in those crowds condemning these women. Um, I've also never heard of anyone changing their plan to get an abortion because some stranger across the street yelled that they're a murderer. And I think the law, I think passing a law does have those same sort of effects. If, if we were to just, out, if I could press a button and abortion would be banned by law, yes, I would do it. I, I just don't think that there is a effective way through legal means to, to pass that kind of a law. We've seen the Christians write, the Christian rights in your face response to abortion, which includes condemnation, protests, and pushing for anti-abortion laws. I don't. I think that we've seen that that doesn't really work, and it's not ended the practice. It's and, and I think it's actually turned people off to Christianity and um, negatively affected their view of Christians as supposedly loving people who are protesting these clinics and whatnot. When it comes to abortion, I'm all for working on an individual level, donating to programs that offer counseling to women who are considering abortion, or starting a organization that counsels people according to the Bible who are considering abortion. Maybe such a program exists. I don't know. So is abortion wrong? Yes, I believe it is. And I believe that unborn babies are innocent. Well, I believe that we're all born in sin. So from a theological point, I don't believe that unborn babies are innocent, but from a practical, on a human level, yes. But what I would ask is, is the best way to change someone's mind about this to force them to do something else or face punishment or condemnation? I don't think that's changing their mind or heart and or the culture that's coercion and forced compliance and it doesn't work on a number of levels and i don't think god is a god of coercion and as i said at the top of this comment i don't think that we're called to change these these things through political means i think he's got a love that changes people's hearts from the inside now when it comes to capital punishment in the last several years there's been between 20 and 50 executions carried out the execution rate peaked in the late 90s and has been trending downwards ever since the practice is banned in many first world and developed countries and it's banned in 19 of our 50 states. The criminal justice system in some states, like Texas, is coming to grips with the fact that they've executed likely innocent people. There's a national effort by criminal justice reform advocates to crack down on what are called Brady violations committed by prosecutors, where prosecutors don't turn over all the evidence they have, some of which can speak to the innocence of the defendant. So what I'm saying is that there's, a move, there's movement on this issue and uh, of capital punishment and considering the infrequency of executions in relation to abortions, passing a law banning executions may be an effective tool in ending the practice. So that's why I would vote for a law banning executions and not necessarily banning abortions because I don't think God calls on us to mandate through the law what women can and cannot do with their bodies. Don't agree with that from a biblical perspective. So... In other words, voting against capital punishment would be a democratic way to coerce the state from committing legally sanctioned murder. Voting for an anti-abortion law, to me, is to coerce the individual into behaving the way I think they should behave based on my beliefs. And I'm not saying that Christians shouldn't vote for an anti-abortion law or that you should vote for an anti-capital punishment law. This, to me, is a personal decision about my faith and how it intersects with my political thinking and how I want to represent my faith to the outside world. And I do believe that it's important to take stands, even if you know, they're in symbolic stands, that are unlikely to affect real change. But for me, considering these issues, I want to take the stand that incorporates compassion and has a better chance of changing the heart, not just the outward behavior. Can I ask a clarifying question? Sure. Let me uh, summarize what I understand to be your position, and then you tell me if I got it right. What you're saying is that morally, you think abortion is wrong. Morally, you think that capital punishment is right. But from a policy point of view, 
you wouldn't outlaw abortion, but you would outlaw capital punishment. Mm. I, do I have that totally backwards, or is that correct? Did you say morally I'm, I'm for capital punishment? That's what it sounded like you said. Yeah. I th- Are you more like? Do you think it's moral to execute somebody who commits a capital crime? I take the same position that you do. That I think God gives governments right to execute people, but as a Christian, I don't want to be involved in it. So, okay. how, however, that I mean, morally, based on God's word, yeah, I mean, it, it does. There is right. biblical basis for killing people that right. commit. So you're taking a moral position on both of these issues, right? But then you have a separate question, which is, what should my country do in a public policy sense? And that's that's where you're disagreeing with Candace here. Candace's point was, why would I support a law that bans capital punishment, but not support a law that bans abortion? Right. That's a public policy question. Right. That's, your, right. that's, uh, that's, that's about your political engagement, not right. about what's moral or immoral. Like, for example, the test case we used before was like, what do you think about gay marriage? Should it be outlawed or not? And I, I think there were a lot of Christians before this actually happened where they took the position it should be legalized, even though I believe it's wrong. So they have a moral perspective that says it's, it's morally wrong for gay people to get married. But then the public policy point of view is but it should be allowed because not everyone's a Christian and they're not following my morals anyhow and we live in a pluralist society. Yes. So what I'm saying is your moral position and your political position are not ne- necessarily the same. Right. And that's what I'm trying to clarify here for you. Yes. Like you're saying morally, if you could flip a switch and make abortions impossible. I would. You would. But if you were to vote on it, you, you said you wouldn't because... You're concerned about it going underground and being coercive. Mm-hmm. Did I get that right? Going underground, being coercive, using my my beliefs to enact a policy that literally prevents women from doing what they want to do with their bodies. I don't think that that's my place as a Christian to take my f- faith into the political sphere and force somebody to do anything. I don't think that's the way that God operates. And I, I have a, I have a, you know, a natural resistance to forcing anybody to do anything, especially when it comes to well, faith. Well, in a sense, your your public policy position is is consistent in this regard because mm-hmm. uh, enacting capital punishment is also coercive. Right, but it's coercive to the state, not the individual. There's a difference there. Right, but the person who doesn't want to get executed is forced to get executed. Right. That's my point there. So you're against coercing, coercion, period. Yeah. Because there is a consistency between the two positions you took, right? Yeah. My, my, I believe there backwards? is. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think there is a consistency there. I, I, I think I disagree with you, but I, I can respect that you have a consistency in how you work this out in your how you would vote and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. For me, I would distinguish between... Uh, I guess I don't know what the terminology would be, but like crimes versus uh, culture in a sense, or, or crimes versus uh, civil. Uh, well, let me give an example, and maybe you can tell me what I'm trying to say here. Um, I believe that sexual harassment is a sin, 
and you shouldn't do it. A lot of people disagree with that. They think it's funny or they think it's uh, an appropriate way to um, wield the power of their position. And they think it's, you know, maybe a gray area, but they don't think it's necessarily wrong in all cases. Whereas I do think it's wrong in all cases, right? But this is not a crime in the United States, sexual harassment. Sexual assault is, but not sexual harassment. Am I right on that? So that's an area where you have different views. And so this is where companies have had to really step in and take an active role because it's not like you can go to the police and be like, all right, this person sexually harassed me. Here's a tape recording of it. What are you going to do? The police is going to say, well, if he didn't threaten you physically. Or forcibly touch you. Or forcibly touch you. Like, I'm not going to do anything. So this isn't, I don't know what you call that kind of thing, but that's, that's something where there's more freedom and it's based on what your perspective is. And, and if you work in that kind of a job where that's going to be taken seriously by an HR department. You're talking about the court of public opinion. Right. And then you have certain things that we agree are wrong. Doesn't matter what your beliefs are. Okay, so like theft. If I steal someone's laptop, it doesn't matter if I belong to a new religious group that believes in stealing. You know what I mean? Like I, I still have to, everyone has to pay for that. Murder, same thing. Doesn't matter if you are part of a, a group that teaches that you should kill your babies so they all can have a, a good afterlife and drown them in a tub. Yeah, that's your religious belief, but the, the, the uh, religious freedom ends where you're taking someone's life in this case, right? So you curtail the religious freedom for the purpose of saving someone's life. So I think there's a difference between uh, those two kinds of things, like adultery. Here's, here's a perfect example of something that switched sides within the last couple hundred years. So it went, or probably within the last hundred years, it went from being a punishable crime in this country to not being a punishable crime, but it's still a sin. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? So I don't know how you how you distinguish that, but what I I would lump in abortion with something that would be wrong for everyone. Doesn't matter what your religious position is, because it is killing someone. I would agree with you. So uh, for me, I would be comfortable voting a political uh, like if there was a referendum on that. I would be comfortable voting for that because I believe it falls in with the category of like theft or murder and not the same as adultery like non-christians are going to commit adultery you know what i mean they don't they don't think it's wrong or maybe it's not as wrong as some other is you know staying in a loveless marriage or whatever like so we extend freedom to people to have their own expression on those but then there are certain things we, we, we take away freedom on we say if you do this it's a crime it doesn't matter what you believe so you're comfortable with forcing somebody to behave a certain way based on how you believe is what I'm is what I'm hearing. Yes. Yeah, I'm not I'm not comfortable with that. Right. So I think that's that's our major difference. Then. Mm-hmm. I think there's a time for that. I think Jesus is going to come back and and that God will be the final judge and that well, He's going to sort this out and that people that do have abortions are going to have to answer for them. But I don't believe it's I'm called as a Christian to right now in this present age to use my faith to force people against their will to do something. I, I would say that. I wouldn't want to be the one forcing people either, just to clarify my position. But I think it's well by voting for that law, you would be, you would be, you would have a hand in that. Right, but I think it's the government's role to punish with the sword. You know what I mean? So if I was living in a country that didn't allow voting or anything like that, then 
I would be living the, the same ideal that Jesus set out for us. Uh, but if the government does allow for some, some input, then I, I think it's, it's up to each individual person to decide if they want to participate in that or not. And I believe it's the function of the government to protect people from killing other people and to protect people's property. You know, I, I don't have like a, a fully figured out position on, you know, what my view of the government is, but at least those two things, life and property, and, you know, it really stinks that, you know, a woman's body gets all um, pregnant and has to go through all this, like, gestation period, especially if she doesn't want the baby. I recognize that. And maybe, scientifically, they could find some other solution to that at some point. You know, so it's not like your body's going through this whole thing. But those are the options right now. It's like either, either you have to carry the, the kid to term or you kill the kid. So I'm also taking, I, I, I understand that. I understand what you're saying. I'm also taking a longer view or a more macro view of if the Christian right coalesces around a law and gets it passed blanket ban on abortion. And these hundreds of thousands of women every year who would otherwise get abortions can no longer get abortions. What is that going to do to people's attitudes towards Christians? And how is that going to bring more people to Christ? That's going to turn people away from Christ. That's going to, they're going to look at that and be like, they're going to blame us for enacting this law that forces them to do something that they don't want to do. And so they have the babies. They don't want them. They give them up for, they give them up for adoption. And now we have, now we have hundreds of thousands of kids every year going into shelters. And so, so that creates its own public policy issue. So it's not just the more, I don't think you can, I don't think this issue exists in a vacuum. I think you have to consider the consequences that ripple out from passing a law like this. And you also have to look at it in the paradigm of if, if we're trying to spread the gospel and spread the good news and the message and, and love people is being responsible for a law like that going to further that goal, or is it going to be a detriment to that goal? I'm all for working on an individual level. Cause I think that's how Jesus worked. Yes. He preached to the thousands, but a lot of records in the New Testament, you see Jesus working on a one-on-one basis and, and people see that change with that one person and it changes their heart. Yeah. Forcing somebody to do something is not going to change their heart. Uh, well, to be fair, we're forcing them not to do something. No. If they don't do anything, they're going to have the kid. So we're, we're forcing them not to be allowed to kill the kid. You're forcing them to have the kid. I mean, we're talking semantics now. Uh, well, if they do nothing, they're going to have the kid. Right. We're, we're disallowing them from aborting the kid. That's what the law would There's be. still force there. There's a taking away of choice. What's the, yeah. what's the difference? Well, I mean, that would afford the unborn the protection of the born. So I'm not forced not to kill anyone. I still can kill people, but that makes it illegal. Okay. All right. So let's pause this conversation here and bring Rose in because Rose is <laughs> Rose is a woman. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Rose has a comment that she's responding to also. Well, did you want to say anything about what we had? I I really don't want to get into policy because government, I mean, it's just a whole, it's a whole other realm and we are not really given guidelines for, for how to, how to treat policy. We know we're supposed to respect government um, as a Christian, but beyond that, we can get into gray areas and people have very different opinions. I will just say though, um, you know, we've talked and we've all spoken very passionately um, about those who have faced capital punishment who are innocent 
that is a drop in the bucket um, compared to the unborn lives that are taken, which is genocide. And um, they're all innocent, certainly no murderers um, among them. So the travesty by far is taking the lives of the unborn. I mean, every innocent life that is taken is absolutely a tragedy, but in terms of numbers, um, they're not even comparable. Rose is now also responding to a comment on the same episode, Oscar 34, Killing the Unborn, A Christian View of Abortion. And she's replying to John, who wrote a very extensive comment. So Rose has prepared a very extensive response. And uh, this will hopefully clarify a little bit more about the subject of abortion. And as Rose has already said, she's not as keen on getting into the debate on the public policy side. She's really focusing on the moral question of, is it right or wrong for somebody to do this? Rose, take it away. John, thank you so much for your comment. Um, Sean could probably speak to this a little bit better than I can, but as far as I know, I don't know if we've had anyone um, put as much thought or time into constructing a response as you have. Um, I did a word count back in the day, and I think it was like 2,100 words, (laughs) and I wrote you a measly response of 2,000 words, so (laughs) um, I I didn't even address everything that you had in there, and this honestly is not the context to like give a totally comprehensive response, but I wanted to do that um, really to the extent that I could and um, and answer you as honestly and fully as I can um, in this medium. So you had four points. Um, I want to address your introduction and your four points. Honestly, in your conclusion, um, it got so expansive that I really can't um, address that here. Um, that would be like really a topic in its own, but thank you very much. And I hope I'll do it justice. All right. So your thesis statement in in the introduction is you say the subject is too vast and there are so many variables that volumes could be and have been written from a Christian perspective to think there is a simple prescription to every circumstance, a formula or a succinct answer to a dilemma many are often faced with. I I would say to you, in a society where we have blurred so many moral lines, it's easy to imagine God may also have, have relaxed his demands of us. Yet we know that this is not true. God holds his people to the same high standard of holiness and surrender that can be intimidating by its very simplicity. When we commit to do all to the glory of God, we won't try to muddy the waters of that simplicity in an effort to justify sin. That's not to say that we can't question and discuss, but we can't complicate God's simple demands of us in an effort to find loopholes in God's demands. In part one, you talk about uh, referring to from the Mosaic Law. You say, harsh punishment prescribed in itself does not constitute some extra authority to bear on conclusions for Christians today. Associated punishment for infractions of the Mosaic Law is not a formula for definitively or on a sliding scale deciding God's thoughts on matters for Christians today. I would say, agreed, we're not under the Mosaic Law. Topical passages from the Mosaic Law are instructive as to how God instituted laws for his people in the past, but they are not authoritative for us today. I think many of us are, feel very fortunate about that. We should, however, consider commands given elsewhere in the Bible that do apply to us. God gave this foundational command to Noah and all humanity, Jews and non-Jews, in Genesis 9. It says, And for your lifeblood I will surely demand an accounting. And from each human being, too, I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. This passage establishes God's respect for human life and the basis for this, that humans are created in the image of God, and that we should also have the utmost respect for this glorious image reflected in us. All of scripture reinforces this perspective. 
Although Jesus came to fulfill the Mosaic law and put us rather under grace, he raised the bar for respect of human life rather than lowering it. In the Sermon on the Mount, he argues that anyone who lashes out in hatred to someone else is a murderer at heart. Far from slackening the standard, Christ intensifies it. Truly, the kingly law of love demands more of us than the Mosaic law. Romans 6... (laughs) Thanks. That's actually very similar to what I said earlier to you, Sean. So Romans 6 continues this theme where Paul says, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. Do not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are the slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness." Far from functioning as a license to sin, being under grace demands slavery to righteousness. Our old selves were crucified with Christ that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Now we are to consider ourselves as dead to sin, but alive to God. You also pointed out, John, the dangers of Christians using the Mosaic law as justification for killing abortion doctors. Romans 13 clearly teaches that it's the role of governments alone to judge criminals and not the role of believers. In Romans 12, God claims vengeance as belonging to him alone. Although I am persuaded that abortion is a crime against both humanity and God, for a Christian to take the life of anyone, regardless of their wrongdoing, is not carrying out divine justice, but instead committing that same crime against humanity and against God. Okay, part two, you talk about um, us making inferences from the scriptures. You write, Caution and restraint must be exercised when there is any attempt to make an inference from the Mosaic Law Scriptures, or any scripture, New or Old Testament, and present it as applicable to a present-day Christian, especially when the matter being considered is of such importance as life and death. John, I understand the point you're making, but I would actually argue the other way around, particularly in regards to the authority of the New Testament over the life of a believer. I would invert that statement and say that especially when the matter being considered is of such importance as life and death, caution and restraint must be exercised when there is any attempt to disregard scriptures as being inapplicable to a present-day Christian. Colossians 2.8 says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. You mentioned the example of the Pharisees who are quote-unquote self-appointed experts on making inferences from the scriptures. I would argue that the Pharisees' greatest flaw was not the inferences they made striving for holiness in the minutiae of their lives, but rather their hypocrisy in the critically important things they overlooked. In Matthew 23, Jesus criticizes the Pharisees, not for their inferences, but for their gross oversights. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. There is that word without. Yeah, without. Similarly, how gross our oversights. If we decide to eat kosher, observe the Sabbath and tithe our spices, but overlook God's guidance on life and death, mercy and justice. My personal approach when facing any sort of circumstance where I'm uncertain as to what is permitted is to err on the side of reverence. Especially in cases of life and death of the helpless and innocent, the reverent choice is obviously to choose life, in my opinion. In a case where choosing death could clearly be incredibly wrong, I can't afford to make dangerous inferences to the contrary about what might be permissible. The Christian walk is not about finding areas in which we can take license, but about pursuing a love relationship with God that leaves us to live without spot or blemish, waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells according to his promise. Your third point dealt with isolating scriptures, discussing one thing, and expanding on them, and applying them to another subject, particularly um, around Psalm 139. 
John, you referred to us reading Psalm 139 in the last episode and too quickly drawing the conclusion that God considers the life of the unborn begins at conception. We do believe that, but we don't draw that conclusion on the basis of Psalm 139 alone. We also considered other passages that show God's care for the unborn. None of these passages deal directly with the topic of when life begins or whether terminating these lives would be morally permissible. Yet they paint a consistent picture of God's regard for the unborn he forms in the womb after his own image. Psalm 139 says that God has always been intimately acquainted with us and forms the unborn fearfully and wonderfully. In Jeremiah 1, God tells Jeremiah he has known him even before his conception and before he was born. God appointed him a prophet to the nations. Similarly, we see that long before Christ's miraculous conception, he had been appointed to save his people from their sins. In Luke 1, the unborn John the Baptist leaps in his mother's womb as Mary enters Elizabeth's house. And in Genesis 25, as Rebecca struggles with a painful pregnancy, God says that two nations are in her womb. Psalm 139 is a beautiful and well-known text among pro-life proponents, but the whole of the Bible promotes the value, divine image, and God-given calling of the unborn. It's important to take into consideration the point of each individual passage, but when all passages touching on the value of unborn life harmonize, this is an important conclusion to draw as well. There's no actual scripture that says life begins at conception. I mean, it's clear no. That, it's clear that the unborn child is still a human. Mm-hmm. And that even before the child is born, the child is recognized as in the image of God and everything mm-hmm. else. Uh, but it, it's not like the Bible says, well, it, you know, T minus, you know, one day, it's now uh, in the image of God. Or, you know, it doesn't yeah. actually say it anywhere. Well, no, it doesn't say any of that. I think on the basis of Genesis 9, we would equate blood with life. So um, I, I think a, v- a very young child will have blood and have a beating heart. So, I mean, if you go on that basis, that still takes it to an incredibly early date. But God regards the personhood and the future calling of the unborn. Yeah. Uh, moving on to another part in, in your third point, you also mentioned Sean's example of a severely disabled child who may not be viable outside of intensive care. You said, is this too the work of God's hands? I would much rather conclude this is the work of sinful man and the work of the devil. John, there is no doubt that this is an instance of the curse of our sin ravaging an unborn child. However, the child itself is not a work of sinful man or of the devil. I remember my high school chemistry teacher, of all people, speaking about disabled people and saying, quote unquote, God don't make no junk. By this he meant that even ravaged by the curse, people with severe disabilities are just as valuable as those of us we would call perfect human specimens. Disabled people bear the image of their creator to the same extent. The curse is not so strong as to override the image of God in us. In John 9, when Jesus encounters a blind man, the disciples asked him whose sin caused the man's blindness. Jesus said it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but rather that the works of God might be displayed in him. Where we as humans tend uh, to fixate on what we might call, quote-unquote, junk, God sees the sacredness of his image and even opportunities to display his glory. What was that line you said a little earlier? You said something is not so strong as to take away the image of God. Yeah, the curse, the curse is not so strong as to override the image of God in us. I think this is somewhat of a manifesto, Rose. I mean, it's very good. You're saying that what makes a human a human, and therefore of infinite value because it's in the image of God, is not the capability of the person, the potential of the person, having two arms, two legs, two eyes, hair, you know, all your body parts, none of that. So what, what is it? Um, it's, I honestly think it's humanity. So Adam was made in the image of God, and then 
everyone from him. I mean, regardless of your physical state uh, and regardless of even what happens to you in your life, your sicknesses, your impairments, you might lose a limb. Adam was created in the image of God. And so all his descendants were humanity. I think really in any form and so many of us fall under the curse in one way or another. I think very few of us could measure up to probably the physical and mental prowess that Adam had. Um, But that does not diminish the image of God in us. Or in a culture inundated with Hollywood actors, uh, we have uh, the Oscars tonight uh, at the time of this recording. We look at the, the, the fine specimens of humanity there from a physical point of view. I mean, some of the best looking people in the world are in Hollywood or on magazine covers. And we're, we're sort of like consciously or subconsciously always measuring ourselves up to this like this ideal of perfection that is so often put before our eyes that we usually think of ourselves as, oh, well, if I only had, you know, this alteration or that alteration, then I would be more attractive or valuable or whatever. But you're taking the exact opposite position as a culture here. You're saying the most uh, disabled person is of equal value and dignity as the most, like, Arnold Schwarzenegger, super muscle, turned governor of California. I, I don't know <laughs> position on that, but I mean, it's a rather impressive thing for the Terminator to become the governor. Right. But, uh, anyhow, um, you're, you're saying that that, that sale person has, has just the same amount of humanity and dignity and Imago Dei. Right. And, and God alone, eyes. right. And God alone can determine like the value of a person. It's very easy for us to go around and, you know, sort of grade people in terms of, you right. know, their physical, um, you know, how impressive they are in a physical that's a way human, or mental That's a human and societal way. thing that happens. Right. It's and not, that's so that's natural. That's not God's view of humanity. Right. We, we do that and we make it incredibly complex. I mean, and everyone has different standards too. You look at standards of beauty and physique and that changes all, you know, th- so much throughout time. So our standards are all over the place, but God has Transient, been consistent. Yeah. yeah and it's well, based on his own too, image. The other thing too, is that we, um, we, we value people based on what they contribute to society a lot of times. Yeah. Uh, even though I think a lot of us would, would, would say we're against that, we, we sort of fall into that to some degree as well. Where you, you look at somebody that is doing amazing things like an entrepreneur or whatever that has built his business from the ground up and now is providing jobs for so many thousands of people and providing these gadgets or services that didn't exist before. We say, well, that person, their life has so much value because they've contributed so much. It's mm-hmm. easy to make that connection, but that's not that's not the Christian point of view. Mm-hmm. I actually think society is going, at least Western society, seems to be going in a pretty good direction towards valuing the disabled in one way or another. Like you look at the movie Wonder and um, just different things that have different forms of uh, of media and um, culture that have been more inclined to take the perspective of disabled people than we have in the past. So I think we are um, going in a good direction. I hope the trend continues to respect. Even, even from a governmental perspective i mean the americans with disabilities act is a groundbreaking yeah, true. piece of legislation that really really improved the lives of disabled people something to be proud of mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah i'm glad it's not all bad news here yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i think it's a good thing part four um john you summed it up as making strong bold declarations as proof that we have scriptural or other basis for a certain course of action as being the only right and correct one John, so in the previous episode, I stated my personal convictions that even if I were faced with a difficult pregnancy due to rape, incest, or my life being at risk due to my pregnancy, that I could never justify taking the life of my child. You mentioned the example of the Apostle Peter, who made a bold declaration that he would never deny Jesus, but in the hour of reckoning, ended up denying him three times. 
I'll probably never be in such a situation and will probably never know if my actions would hold up to my convictions. If in one of these circumstances, though, I ever decided to end my child's life, I can't ever picture being able to justify it before God. If I ever did make that decision, I'm confident that it would be driven purely by my fear and not by a shift in my convictions. If I do face such a circumstance, I am the Lord's, and I rest in the assurance that perfect love casts out fear. I know the one who has called me is faithful and able to keep my whole spirit and soul and body blameless. We must all answer for our own deeds, and no one is answerable to my convictions except for me, but we are all answerable to the standards God has set forth. And in trying to come to a biblical perspective on killing the unborn, I shared how I am persuaded to live not for myself, but for Christ who died for me. I said what I said because of the far-reaching love and mercy God showed me. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, the Apostle Paul writes, Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The love of God has purchased me and possessed me, and if I am to live out that complete surrender, I must be willing to sacrifice my comfort, convenience, and even my life. Christ has warned us to count the cost and take up our cross and follow him, so we shouldn't be surprised if we are called to share in his suffering. I'm not going to elaborate, John, on the additional ethical issues you listed in your conclusion due to time constraints and trying to keep to a single topic, but I'd like to thank you so much for thoughtfully engaging with us and joining our conversation. Uh, I hope my answers have been um, full and complete, and I hope God blesses you. Thank you. Okay, so on this one, it's, it's really interesting, the, uh, the contrast of the conviction that we can have when it comes to the question of how should Christians view the subject of abortion, and then the confusion and dis- discordance that we had when we were talking about how should America uh, legislate for or against legalized abortion. You know what I mean? And I think this, that is indicative of any number of, of controversial issues that we may discuss, whether it's talking about immigration, capital punishment, abortion, any, any number of these controversial things that are before us and, and will continue to be before us in our culture. Um, and, I, and I think it's important to recognize and, and not muddy the waters that, that when it comes to the moral question of what is right for you as a Christian, I'm, I'm assuming here, you dear listener, that you are a Christian, okay? So assuming that you're a Bible-believing Christian, that you recognize the Bible as authoritative, then this is really not that difficult of an issue. When it comes to figuring out, well, what about non-Christians and should they do it or not, that's where it gets complicated. And I, and I want to make it clear that there is a distinction there and that you can be passionate and convinced and yet uncertain at the same time, you know, on, on the same issue, but with respect to different people. Like you have your own life to live. And then the question is, what about everybody else? So I don't know. I just cut that, that contrast really came through um, in this episode. Any, any other comments, Dan or Rose? I guess I don't understand. I mean, I I get what he's saying in his overview, but my understanding of his comment is that you can't really come down with a across the board position based on the Bible is basically what he's saying. But then he says that he believes that there is no problem in life that we cannot solve using God's word. Mm. So I don't, I don't. Seems conflicting. Yeah. When I read this comment, it sounded to me like he was arguing for skepticism. Right. Which to me is always uh, annoying. No, no offense, John. <laughs> uh, it's, not, it's not you. It's just that I personally am always seeking clarity, not a position that says, well, you can't know. Yeah. You know, maybe there are some things where, yeah, you can't know. Like, did he know that Adam was going to sin and stuff like that? You know, counter another one of these counterfactuals. Right. <laughs> That's my word of the day, counterfactual. 
but uh, when, it, when it comes to things like uh, killing people or not, I, I think we should have a, a clear point of view on it. Um, and that's been this whole series that we've done, you know, whether it's killing the elderly, the sick, the criminal, the unborn, whatever. Like, I think we did take a, a fairly strong position on each one and yet left enough freedom when it comes to uh, how you want to engage politically, whatever your point of view is that you're coming from, for you to figure that out for yourself. Because in the end, Offscript is not a political podcast. It's a biblical podcast, and we're dealing with the issues of our time and leaving it up to you to figure out how you want to or not want to politically engage in that. Well, thanks for tuning in. I hope you found that conversation stimulating. If you want to add your voice to the mix or help us come to a better understanding on this issue, please visit us at restitutio.org and you can find Offscript 46, Should Christians Outlaw Abortion Q&A, and leave a comment there. Also, if you haven't yet, why not head over to episode 34 and listen to our much more extensive treatment on killing the unborn. And in that episode, you'll hear the real biblical arguments that we make. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time as we seek to get off the world script and live out authentic Christianity.